strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Uh, please uh, come in, have a seat. As uh, always, I'd like to introduce the gentleman to my right, my valet Wilkinson. Yeah, he assists with our little show by pulling our references from the shelves and uh, reading any passages that need quoting. Pleased to meet you. I do hope all our listeners enjoyed a uh, pleasant holiday and are uh, experiencing a promising new year. Uh, Wilkinson and I wrapped up our season with a bit of playful uh, divination, our traditional tarot reading for the year. Uh, I don't put much stock in this sort of thing, actually, but it seems to mean a lot to Wilkinson. Actually, uh, well, it, it is interesting to observe, and Madame Darnley has always been so colorful the way she goes about it. Yes, we uh, usually fly Madame D out from England, but she's 92 now and claimed this year to be too old to travel, so we had to uh, cast about for a new reader. I believe she wanted to make the trip, but her daughter seemed against the idea. She wasn't happy hearing about how much sherry the two of you went through in those three days last year. Or the emergency room visit. I settled out with the hospital. It didn't cost them a penny. And I did warn her to go a bit easier on the sherry. There's only so much a person can do. At least we found our replacement reader this year. Yes, after a fashion, I suppose. Well, it wasn't easy finding someone with that qualifying checklist you drew up. Some of them even hung up on me when I got your quiz questions. But look what happened before I drew up the checklist. That first woman couldn't have been less suitable. She had 20 years experience. She was tan. How on earth can someone perfect their intuitive powers when they're spending all that time out in the sun? Well, that second woman... I still don't know what happened there. Did you see the deck she brought? I expressed a clear preference for the Balinese deck. I would have settled for the Rider weight, but what did she even bring? I don't even know what that was. I I saw dolphins on it. The way you jumped up and left, I had no idea what to say to her. It was as if you'd had some kind of attack or been taken ill. Well, yes, as I said, dolphins. And... Any case, let's get started. I suppose it's appropriate. We've been talking uh, tarot, as uh, we'll be actually returning to that uh, subject later in our show, uh, briefly at least. Uh, we do have quite a lot to cover, so uh, let's go. Episode 18 Wild Men, Furry Saints, and Burning Dancers. So I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and our show Bone and Sickle, as you likely know, is about the intertwining of uh, horror and folklore, often with a little cultural history thrown in. I started all this as a way to expand upon material related to my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, from which our uh, content for the uh, December episodes was drawn. Bone and Sickle is made possible through the generosity of Patreon donors, 
and I'll have uh, some more details on all that at the uh, end of the show. When the guests are gathered, you would enter. Arms swinging, advancing toward the screaming lady with lowered head and grinning jaws. Have no fear! I can control this monster! The clip is from one of Roger Corman's uh, Edgar Allan Poe films starring Vincent Price, uh, his uh, 1964 adaptation of The Mask of the Red Death. Uh, Corman padded the film by inserting a plotline from Poe's 1848 story, Hop Frog, in which a dwarf bearing this name and serving as jester to a, a cruel king exacts revenge upon his masters via an elaborate plot that involves dressing the king and seven members of his court in orangutan costumes for an appearance at a royal mask. The costumes, significantly, are contrived from linen suits covered in flax affixed with tar. It's time for a new dance to begin. The Dance of Death. After making their frightful entrance with Hop Frog leading the costumed beasts on a chain, Poe has the dwarf attach the chain to a chandelier, which is raised via pulley and counterweight to dangle the helpless performers over the heads of the crowd. Hop Frog encourages the guests to guess the identities of the performers. Here, pretending to scrutinize the king more closely, he held the flambeau to the flaxen coat which enveloped him, and which instantly burst into a sheet of vivid flame. In less than half a minute, the whole eight orangutans were blazing fiercely. His revenge is quickly complete. The eight corpses swung in their chains, a fetid, blackened, hideous, and indistinguishable mass. Now, uh, fantastic and contrived as this uh, grotesque little scene may be, it turns out to have been inspired by an actual historical event. On January 28th, 1393, at the Parisian court of Charles VI, a uh, mask or ball took place, which has come to be known as uh, the Bal des Sauvages, a ball of the wild men, or more commonly, the uh, Bal des Ardents, a ball of the burning men. It was held to celebrate the remarriage of one of the queen's uh, ladies-in-waiting and was highlighted by the appearance of the king and five members of his court, costumed as uh, ape-like wild men. As in the Poe story, their costumes were created from highly flammable linen suits sewn onto the performer's body for better fit and drenched in resin to which uh, was adhered uh, flax simulating fur. Their faces were likewise covered with masks. Some accounts have the wild men making their appearance chained together as in uh, the Poe story um, and their uh, performance uh, seems to have consisted of uh, some sort of uh, wild dance during which the king and his courtiers uh, teased and uh, menaced the guests and challenged them to guess uh, their identities. Although torches had been forbidden from the hall for safety reasons, according to one of the more thorough accounts, uh, Charles' uh, brother, Oléon, and a companion arrived midway through the performance, drunk and carrying torches. 
the uh, 17th century English writer and politician William Prynne uh, recounts what happened next as a spectator held his torch. So near to the flax that he set one of the coats on fire, and so each of them set fire, one to the other, and so they were all in a bright flame. Another uh, earlier account has uh, Orléans actually throwing a torch in the midst of the dancers. Four of the dancers lost their lives in the conflagration. The king survived as he was uh, somewhat removed from the rest and was protected by the quick thinking of his aunt, the Duchess of Berry, who wrapped him in her ample skirt to protect him from the flames. Another dancer saved himself by leaping into an open barrel of wine. The uh, contemporaneous uh, chronicles of uh, Michel Pantin, better known as the... uh, monk of St. Denis, uh, insert a few other ghastly details into his uh, recounting of the scene. Four men were burned alive, their flaming genitals dropping to the floor, releasing a stream of blood. Charles' subjects were horrified by the tragedy, more so by the spirit of uh, reckless uh, frivolity that evidently ruled the court. With a public uprising brewing against the king, his advisors urged him to organize a uh, penitential procession to the Cathedral of Notre Dame, where uh, further atonements were made. Blame for the entire misadventure eventually uh, was uh, consolidated on uh, Charles' uh, brother, Orléans, who was compelled to donate funds to build a chapel. His reputation, however, was never uh, successfully rehabilitated, uh, already damaged as it was by an incident several years earlier when he was accused of enlisting a uh, defrocked monk to instill with demonic powers a sword, dagger, and ring for some sort of necromantic rite. By 1407, uh, the son of Philip the Bold had ordered the assassination of Orléans on charges of vice, corruption, sorcery, and a long list of public and private villainies. Charles VI himself remained on shaky ground long after the Bal des Antons, but the reasons uh, for that go uh, far beyond a, a mere miscalculation of a costume stunt. Uh, we'll return to that bizarre story at the uh, end of the show. It'll be more than a costume. Won't this thing become uncomfortably hot? It will become a little warm. But it won't be for long. While the idea of uh, dressing as wild men of the forest uh, in the uh, Bande des Odons was uh, most likely undertaken in a uh, spirit of uh, mischievous fun, one uh, 15th century source described the uh, performance as... A dance to ward off the devil. However, uh, in terms of... uh, practices involving actually dressing as a wild man, it's uh, more common to find the the figure representing an aspect of nature. In Sir James Fraser's uh, compendium, The Golden Bough, uh, he records a number of similar uh, German customs, including uh, this uh, 17th century example from the uh, Elsingebirge, the Ore Mountains. Two men disguised as wild men, the one in brushwood and moss, the other in straw, were led about the streets and at the last taken to the marketplace where they were chased up and down, shot and stabbed. Before falling, they reeled about with strange gestures 
and spurted blood on the people from bladders which they carried. When they were down, the huntsmen placed them on the boards and carried them to the alehouse, the miners marching beside them. This uh, ritual was carried out at Shrovetide in the late winter or, or early spring, um, and the notion of uh, capturing or killing a uh, vegetation-clad wild man often was regarded uh, symbolically as a defeat of winter, uh, making possible the coming of spring. Similar figures, also clad in straw, continue to appear in uh, contemporary folk rituals carried out in the late winter or early spring. Though they look nothing like the animal, these figures tend to be called bears rather than wild men, as in the uh, Straw Bear Festival of Whittlesley in East Anglia, or as in uh, any number of similar winter customs found in Germany, Poland, and the Czech Republic. Wild men uh, clad in vegetation also still make the rounds during carnival uh, in the Austrian town of Taus and in the city of Basel, where the uh, procession of carnival figures is mentioned uh, as early as the 14th century. Uh, that is uh, roughly uh, contemporaneous with the antics at the court of uh, Charles VI. While uh, I've been describing figures outfitted in leaves or straw in the uh, Bavarian uh, town of uh, Oberstdorf, the costumes of the wild man appearing in a traditional performance that takes place there every five years uh, nicely uh, illustrate the connection between these uh, vegetative suits and the uh, furry ape-like wild men of Charles' court. Here they use uh, moss and lichens to simulate long, dangling, waist-length beards, and the same is sewn onto uh, cloth suits to uh, suggest a fur-covered body, uh, presumably like the flax was used in the uh, court of Charles VI. Uh, crowns of uh, holly and belts of evergreen are also worn. Dating to at least 1793, when a performance for the Archbishop of uh, Augsburg is noted, the uh, Oberstorfer wild men tradition consists of a particularly uh, intricate series of 17 different acrobatic tableaux uh, culminating in uh, mock battles and a drinking song. I'll put some photos from that event up on the website. Uh, next one's in 2020, by the way. So these uh, costume customs represent only a small part of the uh, wild man's legacy. From the uh, 12th through the 16th century, the figure was represented in uh, carvings in church uh, choir stalls, uh, roof corbels, uh, exterior uh, carvings in the church, stained glass, in uh, illuminations in the margins of books, uh, tapestries, engravings, paintings, uh, as a figure on coats of arms, coins, and uh, even on playing cards. Often the figure was used just to symbolize strength, as in the case with... Uh, heraldic seals of various families. The wild man was uh, represented, usually, as covered in hair, uh, and this signified his animalistic nature, but by the uh, 15th and 16th century, he acquired, uh, perhaps for modesty's sake, the uh, same sort of uh, crowns of leaves and girdles of foliage uh, that I was describing in the uh, Oberstdorfer performances. Uh, he also uh, almost always uh, carries or carried a club or sometimes an uprooted tree, which of course would be also used as a club. And that's the case with the uh, wild man that appears in uh, Basel's uh, carnival. While the name uh, 
Wildman, or its equivalent in other languages, was most often used. In England, he was also known uh, by the term woodwos, the uh, first part of the word naturally referring to the woodlands, and woes uh, sometimes uh, said to relate to a Middle English term for being. The term appears uh, as also as a surname, uh, woodwos, uh, wodehouse, and uh, finally a woodhouse, as in... Uh, the name of the popular author in humorous P.G. Woodhouse. The Wild Man was equated with a number of classical figures, the satyrs, the fauns, uh, and particularly Sylvanus, the uh, Roman god of woodlands, who was uh, likewise almost always represented with a club. In the uh, Italian-speaking Alps and uh, Lombardy, the uh, names uh, Salvan and Salvang uh, derived from Sylvanus, sometimes were used to describe this uh, medieval wild man. From the uh, 14th through the 16th century, the wild man is particularly important in German-speaking lands, where he was found most often in uh, the mountains, in the Alps, the Harz, the Fichten, the Algarve, where he uh, might also go under the name Schrott, and this is the name you see used to describe costume of figures that parade in a number of German carnivals, looking for all the world like a wild man. The uh, more malevolent, more monstrous figure of the ogre, another being found in wild places, sometimes overlaps with the wild man. Um, the Italians have uh, the uh, equivalent for ogre, orco, and in Tyrol they have the uh, orca or lorca. Um, our English usage of the word comes from uh, France. It was popularized by uh, Charles Perrault's uh, fairy tales. But it appears uh, much earlier in a 12th century manuscript describing the Arthurian knight Percival. And it is written that he will come again to all the realms of Logers, known as the land of ogres, and destroy them with that lance. The uh, Celts of uh, Gaul had their version of the wild man uh, called the uh, Ducios, which was identified by uh, Latin writers with uh, Pan or Faunus or Sylvanus, and um, which acquired a devilish reputation under church influence. This uh, devilish uh, figure sometimes invoked to explain the expression, what the deuce. Like Pan particularly, these uh, forest dwellers, uh, which could be either male or female, were strongly associated with uncontrolled sexuality. Uh, St. Augustine writes... That Sylvanae and Pans, commonly called incubi, have often appeared to women as wicked men, trying to sleep with them and succeeding. These same demons whom the Gauls named Ducii are relentlessly committed to this defilement. As late as the 13th century, uh, theologian and writer uh, Thomas Contiprotinus uh, asserted that the uh, Ducii were still the object of cult veneration on the continent, writing, We see the many works of the demon Ducii, and it is for these that the folk used to consecrate the cultivated groves of antiquity. The folk in Prussia still reckon that the forests are consecrated to them. They don't dare cut them down and never set foot in them, except for when they wish to make a sacrifice in them to their own gods. While uh, pagan beliefs and figures quite naturally were subject to uh, demonizing uh, interpretations, uh, it would be wrong to understand the wild man strictly as a pagan figure. While his uh, life outside the purview of uh, Christian civilization could suggest a demonic nature, it needn't carry that stigma. 
In fact, uh, where civilization itself was seen as a corrupting influence, a life in realms a bit closer to the animal uh, could be seen as a way of um, purging uh, human error and sin from the individual. And this is where we get to our uh, furry saints that I uh, promised in our episode's title. Already in the Old Testament, there is a, a sort of example of this, as uh, with the uh, Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II, who rules over the Jews during the uh, Babylonian captivity, is uh, chastened by God for his arrogance and driven into the wild for seven years to live as an animal. After this uh, sojourn in the wilderness, he returns a better man, and uh, offers praises to the uh, Hebrew God whom the uh, prophet Daniel has been uh, avidly promoting within his court. Interestingly, the uh, scriptural verse describing him taking on the aspect of a beast imagines something closer to a bird, saying, His hair grew like feathers of eagles, and his nails like birds' claws. However, medieval illustrators already familiar with the image of the uh, European wild man tended to render Nebuchadnezzar in uh, this uh, context uh, likewise uh, covered with long hair or fur. Uh, John the Baptist also has uh, an aspect of this as he sojourns in the wilderness, uh, taking on wild aspects in his dress, his wardrobe of camel hide, and uh, in his uh, diet of locusts and honey. Uh, his overgrown beard in uh, medieval illustrations was sometimes accompanied by uh, excessive growth of fur on his body. Saint uh, Anufrius, an obscure disciple of Saint Anthony of Egypt, also was said to have taken on a wild aspect while living as a pious hermit in the desert. Paphnutius, a fellow disciple of Saint Anthony and the Bishop of Thebes, uh, visited him in his retreat and described him as wearing a loincloth of leaves and sporting an outgrowth of hair covering his body, which caused him to be chased by hunters mistaking him for game. Women, uh, too, were occasionally rendered as hirsute holy persons. The 4th century Saint Mary of Egypt, before her sainthood, was a woman devoted to sensual pleasures who earned her way in the world as a prostitute. She was said to have joined a group of pilgrims heading to Jerusalem to celebrate the exaltation of the Holy Cross, but her motivation was less than pure as she hoped to pick up a little bit of business among the entourage from the less than pure pilgrims. Um, Upon arrival at the church in Jerusalem, however, she found herself blocked from entering as if by an invisible hand. After four unsuccessful attempts, she was overcome with guilt for her wicked ways and called upon the Virgin to show her a path out from her sin. In this case, that path involved a penitential hermitage in the desert, where she lived in primitive conditions, abandoning the vanity of her fine clothing and covered only by her hair, which grew unnaturally long. In some medieval illustrations, this is represented only with head-to-toe tresses, but in others, she is depicted with fur actually growing from her body. A uh, similar representation of uh, Mary Magdalene is occasionally found. It probably results from confusion between the two uh, Marys. One last wild man of sorts, albeit a uh, particularly human, particularly civilized specimen, can be encountered at the world's oldest museum 
in Innsbruck, Austria. It's uh, the Chamber of Arts and Wonders, the Kunst und Wunderkammer, created by Archduke Ferdinand II and housed in Ambras Castle. It's uh, the only example of a uh, Renaissance-era Cabinet of Curiosities style collection, still housed in its original location, and as such uh, is particularly rich in grotesque uh, specimens that should place it on the travel bucket list of listeners to this show. Among these items is the uh, famous portrait of Count Dracula's prototype, Vlad Tepes, a 16th century painting of uh, Gregor Bacci, a Hungarian nobleman who posed for his portrait with the tip of a lance embedded in his head, and a painting presumed to depict a court jester with deformities considered so shocking that it is displayed with a hanging covering one must lift to see what lies below the subject's neck. Uh, but uh, none of these are the reason I brought this up, just a place you might want to try to see someday. Um, of uh, interest in our consideration of the wild man is the painting of uh, Petrus Consalvus, who appears covered in long flowing hair from head to toe. He was called the Man of the Woods by Ulisa Aldrovandi, uh, founder more or less of modern natural history and author of the uh, 16th 42 volume on human oddities, Monstorum Historia. Uh, Gonsalves is the first recorded case of this sort of uh, hairiness, uh, which, uh, thanks to the presence of his portrait and that of his likewise afflicted daughter in Ambrose Castle, in 1933 led to the adoption of the term Ambrose Syndrome to describe this uh, condition. Born in 1537 in the Canary Islands, Gonsalves came at the age of 10 to the court of Henry II of France, ending up in the Netherlands at the court of Alexander Farnese, Duke of Parma, where he met and married a Lady Catherine. Their marriage, it's believed, may have uh, inspired the fairy tale Beauty and the Beast, or at least the look of the beast in uh, Jean Cocteau's 1946 film. La Belle et la Bête. A few decades later, there was another famed figure with Ambrose Syndrome, namely uh, Barbara van Beck, who uh, traveled between the courts of Paris and London, performing on the harpsichord. I'll post a, a lovely engraving of her uh, offering one of her musical performances on the website. By the uh, 1860s, exhibitors like P.T. Barnum were redefining uh, the notion of the wild man, presenting those with Ambrose syndrome like the Russian Fyodor Yatichev as a feral half-human or dog-faced boy, and the Polish performer Stefan uh, Brzewski as a lion man whose condition was caused by his mother witnessing the mauling of her husband by a lion during her pregnancy with the unborn Bibrovsky. The uh, former of these, by the way, served as a peculiar uh, inspiration for a peculiar 1959 pop song by Disney Mouseketeer, Annette Funicello, Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy. Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy! Well, I did promise a bit more uh, information on the curious history of Charles VI early in the episode, and... That's what we'll be closing with. The king inherited his throne at the tender age of 11, 
and though the royal age of majority was set at 14, the uncles in control of his regency did not relinquish power until Charles had reached the age of 21, all the while squandering funds in the royal coffers. In 1388, Charles was finally able to seize the reins of power and dismiss his uncles, whom the populace had grown to despise. Uh, this action earned the young king the uh, epitaph, Charles the Beloved. But a mere four years later, he acquired a uh, much more enduring nickname, Charles the Mad. While it's likely there was always some incipient madness lurking within the uh, royal personality, what seemed to really unleash these demons was an assassination attempt on Charles' friend and advisor, Olivier de Clisson. Learning that assassins were hiding out in Brittany, Charles proceeded to organize an expedition to capture them, becoming increasingly feverish and difficult to communicate with during the process. But the king's real breaking point came while pursuing the assassins, riding with his men through the uh, forest near Le Mans, uh, it triggered, it seems, by the appearance of a mysterious stranger. Uh, Wilkinson will provide the story as it's told in an 1883 volume of the American Magazine. Suddenly a man, almost naked, with wild hair and eyes, sprang out from between the trees, seized the horse's bridle, and cried in a hoarse voice, King, advance no further! Turn back! You are betrayed! He grasped the reins so tightly that it was necessary to strike him to make him let go, but there was no venturing to stop or to follow him, and he disappeared as mysteriously as he came. After the first moment of fright, the king did not say a word. The only thing to be noticed about him was his altered look and a certain shuddering which seemed to run through his frame. The king was accompanied by two esquires. One of these, turning round on his horse, let his lance carelessly fall on the other's helmet. As the sharp sound struck on his ear, the king started as if awakened from a deep reverie. And, believing that this was the fulfillment of the warning he had got, he drew his sword, spurred his horse, and struck at all that came in his way. It said Charles killed four men in his frenzy before being subdued and suffered bouts of mental illness henceforth till his death. At times, he would not recognize his own children or wife, whom, when she visited him in his chambers, he would ask his servants to send away. He could at times not even remember his own name, and occasionally claimed to be St. George. During the year 1405, for a period of five months, he refused to bathe or change his clothes. Historian Desmond Seward records that he would run howling like a wolf down the corridors of the royal palaces and that entrances were walled up to keep the mad king inside. Charles is most notorious, however, for his bizarre conviction that his body was made of glass and was constantly in danger of shattering to pieces, whether by accident or through malicious intent of those he encountered. He went so far as to demand that iron rods be stitched into his clothing to enforce his uh, presumably fragile body. Oddly, uh, this glass delusion was not entirely unique to Charles and appears here and there in writings of the 15th through 17th century. Miguel de Cervantes' uh, short novel of 1613, The Glass Graduate, assigns the condition to its protagonist 
and the delusion appears among uh, ailments listed in the early study of psychology, uh, Robert Burton's 1621 volume, The Anatomy of Melancholy. A number of physicians were consulted on Charles' condition, as was a necromancer who uh, claimed he could provide help using a magic book called uh, Smagarod, uh, given to Adam by God after the death of Abel, but as you might expect, uh, no attempted remedy proved fruitful. Instead, it was generally agreed that the best course of action was to relieve Charles of any taxing duties of his office and instead provide him with an array of uh, pleasant distractions. Uh, sadly, this is where the idea of a uh, party where the king and his cronies would dress as wild men came in. But there was one diversion which proved more successful than others, and uh, that was his uh, mistress, Odette de Chandiver. Charles' uh, queen, Isabeau, had taken over the king's political responsibilities as head of a regency council and was happy to distance herself from her uh, occasionally dangerous and unpredictable husband. The queen not only allowed Charles to sleep with Odette, but in fact encouraged it, meanwhile enjoying her own affair with the king's brother, Orléans, whom, you'll remember, was blamed for the disastrous stunt with the uh, flammable party wear. By all accounts, Odette, who was nicknamed the Little Queen by the royal court, was genuinely devoted and patient with Charles up until his dying day, and it was said that the last words spoken by the king upon his deathbed was her name. There's one more thing about this uh, mad king and his mistress I wanted to mention. It's the matter of tarot cards, to which I had alluded in our opening. As uh, one of the diversions for the uh, deluded monarch, uh, Odette is said to have purchased for the court three decks of cards newly created by the artist uh, Jacquemin Gringonier. According to some history, she uh, introduced playing cards to France, which is likely not true, but their use in the court would have uh, certainly popularized them, and from France they would arrive in England, Germany, and so on. Those acquainted with the tarot may have heard of this particular deck, and will know that the initial use of these cards was not fortune-telling, but for games. Uh, it is in this sense uh, of the cards as playing cards, and indeed as gambling cards, that uh, the introduction of this deck is described in an 1848 fictionalized history of uh, Odette de Chantivert, that is, The Lily of Paris, or The King's Nurse, by John Palgrave Simpson. The author takes a uh, dark perspective, dark enough, I think, to be a fitting conclusion to our show. When, in the hope of amusing the sad hours of a maniac king, he put his fanciful project in execution, that he was about to entail upon mankind a bitter curse, that the fate of those pieces of pasteboard would be hereafter to disperse about the world a new amount of misery and treachery and avarice and crime and formed so great an episode in the history of social vice for long, long ages after his kindly heart had rotted in the tomb. I do hope you all have been enjoying our shows. Uh, we'll continue listening and tell your friends about what we're uh, doing. We uh, particularly appreciate reviews from those who enjoy these episodes as uh, these make all the difference in the show's uh, visibility on Apple Podcasts and other distributors. 
Our website, boneandsickle.com, provides links to our Facebook group and Twitter, um, along with show notes complete with lots of images and video, including video of uh, any outside music that may have been used in the program. Uh, Music uh, and sound design otherwise are all original for the show. You can also find our donor link there. Patreon members have a choice of gifts and incentives, including exclusive access to extra uh, elements that go into the making of the podcast, uh, digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation of the show, uh, the show soundscapes you hear in the background, and my Krampus book, uh, as well as a signed 8x10 photo of Wilkinson, uh, suitable for framing and adulation. Um, Donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is the Soul support that makes uh, possible the continuation of this program as a uh, regular uh, bi-monthly release. A special thanks to uh, new Patreon subscribers, uh, Robbie Roulette, uh, I'm not sure how German this is, Johanna Oost, uh, Johanna Oost, <laughs> uh, John Somerville, uh, Allison Murray, and uh, Catherine Noggle, and to uh, Freaky Fandoms, who uh, upped their pledge level. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Uh, Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. And thanks so much for listening.